Hello again, everyone. Thanks for tuning into our podcast from the CCB. As you know, the CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to protect the public by enhancing recovery-oriented workforce capacity. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of this, uh, excuse me, this episode of Scope of Practice. As has been the case during the age of COVID-19, I apologize in advance for any barking that my dog does in the background. She likes attention too. Today is the second of our two-part presentation on the unique needs of the transgender community, and we look at the treatment experience of that community. Transgender people have elevated substance abuse prevalence compared to the U.S. general population, but few studies have comprehensively examined the relationship of psychosocial risk factors to substance use disorders and treatment amongst transgender adults. Failure to understand and address these issues has contributed to the dearth of appropriate treatment options for the transgender community. Often they are grouped in with those representing what are termed sexual minority groups, if not excluded altogether. This leads to a troubling second problem on a systemic level, lack of research and information on the experience of transgender individuals who enter treatment. This information is key in developing the proper options to meet the needs Part one of our conversation with Dr. Fred Dombrowski focused on some of the unique characteristics of the transgender community and substance use disorders, while our second part today will identify some characteristics of what would be an efficacious treatment environment. Dr. Fred Dombrowski has worked in the field of mental health since 1999. He's currently a professor for the University of Bridgeport. He specializes in CBT and DBT, as well as in treatment of transgender folks. His work with marginalized populations has contributed to his receiving several awards for his commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Welcome back, Dr. Dombrowski. Good to see you. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. Um, As we were talking before we started recording, um, you've been getting a lot of positive feedback uh, on our uh, podcast from last week, um, and I've been getting the same, so I'm excited to continue uh, and actually to learn more and, and kind of have a discussion to talk about things that, like you said, the marginalized uh, populations, the things that we can do to help. Um, The first thing that jumped out to me in my preparation for the show was something that you discussed with us last week and how transgender individuals with substance use disorders are generally lumped in, if not excluded completely, uh, with the LGBTQ community. To start us off, can you once again briefly outline the difference between uh, transgender individuals and those who have been termed the sexual minority? Sure, absolutely. When we consider the needs of people that would identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, uh, pansexual, or people that would have a sexuality of queer or questioning or asexual, all of those subgroups are focused in on sexuality and a preference for who someone is physically attracted to, emotionally attracted to, sexually attracted to. The issues of people that are experiencing gender dysphoria are not related to sexuality. Sexuality can be an issue for someone who is transgender. I don't want to say an issue, but uh, someone who is experiencing gender dysphoria may then question how they define their sexuality. However, sexual preference is not related to gender dysphoria. And for people who transition, 
people do not transition based on their sexuality and preference for sexual or romantic partners. People usually transition due to the experience of gender dysphoria and feeling disconnected from their bodies. So if you're working with someone who has experienced marginalization as being a sexual minority, whether that person be uh, lesbian or gay or bisexual, they have very unique needs and they have experienced systemic oppression in varying ways. For someone who's ex who is experiencing gender dysphoria, while they are transitioning, while they're identifying themselves, their needs are entirely different. Uh, for someone who identifies as a lesbian, they don't have to worry about what bathroom they're going to use. Uh, for someone who identifies as gay, they may have an option for changing their name, but usually most gay people don't change their names. For people who are experiencing gender dysphoria, they're the treatment of gender dysphoria and the transition component is so cumbersome that it it's much it's just much more i don't say it's much more unique but it is unique when compared to the other groups and all the other groups have their own unique needs as well but the key component for transgender individuals is the experience of gender dysphoria and that feeling of disconnection from their physical bodies whereas other sexual minorities it's based on uh, preference, attraction to sexual, uh, sexual intimacy, romantic intimacy, and the like. It's important to recognize that some people, you know, some clinicians may be confused about this, may not understand it. And as we talk about meeting clients where they're at, you can simply ask somebody what their needs are. What are some of the things that they think they need? And when it's in an, an inquisitive and to be helpful, you usually will get a, a, just a pretty straight answer. Um, as long as someone's not feeling judged. So if you have questions, it's okay to ask a person what they need to make their experience uh, better. What I like about that statement, I'm sorry to jump in, but what I really like about that statement of asking is when I provide treatment to transgender people or uh, people experiencing gender dysphoria, when I work with them on treatment, the first thing we do is gender exploration. And when I ask people to identify how they would feel comfortable some people say the words, I don't know. They would assume that living a life in as the different sex would make them more comfortable. As we engage in gender exploration, though, the individual might identify something entirely different. As uh, transgender people are living in a binary world, ma male and female, mm -hmm. uh, individual transgender people might have uh, gender identities which are outside of the binary. And that gender exploration process is there. We have to ask. And we also have to be okay with if the answer is I don't know. It's totally fine having to explore that and having to uh, be there with the individual. It's not, there's uh, so I really love that you asked that question. I think that's a powerful, uh, you know, it's the easiest way to meet someone where they're at is to ask them where they're at. What are, what's going, what are the things that are important to you? Um, and it builds that therapeutic relationship which we'll talk much more about today. When we look at what the substance use uh, disorder industry has become, we've started to pay attention to the treatment environment as it applies to client satisfaction and the overall efficacy of any specific program. It's generally recognized that issues like safety, privacy, general physical care and upkeep of the premises, and most importantly, the culture of being welcomed, accepted, and affirmed are the basics of any treatment environment. Can you talk about some of the things that would help create that affirming environment for transgender individuals? Mm, absolutely. 
And I really appreciate the question because there are so many small things that can happen in addition to bigger things like uh, such as policies within a company. But even starting off at the small things that we can do, when an individual enters the building, I would, I, in a perfect world, I would love to have every clinic actually have pamphlets available for additional services, whether that be uh, financial services, housing services, uh, and whether it be LGBT supports, and then also services uh, for transgender individuals. As small as this may seem, or as I, I hate to say cliche, it's not cliche, but even having like a safe space poster, which uh, Glisten provides, a uh, safe space po poster. It's uh, it's the upside down triangle. It is in the um, it's a upside down triangle that is uh, usually colored like a rainbow, and it indicates that the place that the person is at is that is is at a safe space where they're not going to experience sexual. Uh, I'm sorry, not not sexual ridicule, but ridicule for who they are, and that can be based on sexuality or gender identity. Those things are nice, though, but that's almost like window dressing. So it's those things are nice. What we need to have even more, though, is we actually have to have the staff promote that diversity, equity, and inclusion, and understanding specifically for the needs of transgender individuals. So in a perfect world, it'd be great if like every clinic had a transgender liaison or someone who had understanding and knowledge specifically about the needs of transgender individuals. And it doesn't take much to download and read the WPATH standards of care. Uh, so. If there is someone in an agency that would be that would take that on and read that within the standards of care, it talks about some of the uh, best ways to create an inclusive environment. And that could be small things such as having um, single bathrooms or non-gendered bathrooms. And yes, we have to look out for patient safety. Those are issues. And with a lot of substance use clinics, most bathrooms would be single anyways because of your analysis and then also asking the individual who they feel comfortable with if they have to provide your analysis who they feel comfortable with in the bathroom and that might take some working with the clinician to be comfortable as well but also discussing how that could impact the patient the patient's role or the patient's focus on their recovery in addition i always know the the macro thing i absolutely encourage every agency to have some form of policy in regards to transgender health. Most agencies will have equity, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion statements, mm -hmm. but it's not specific in regards to transgender needs, such as indicating that an individual who enters treatment would be, would be preferred, would, there would, I'm sorry, would be referred to as their preferred name. And I could, I respect that a lot of staff may have concerns that substance use issues may exacerbate gender dysphoria or may be worried that calling a person by their preferred name as opposed to their uh, birth given name might make things worse. However, though, when we don't respect the individual, that makes it less likely they're going to follow up with treatment. If we create an inclusive and non-judgmental environment, it helps create an, uh, the, it helps create an instance where the individual feels free to explore themselves without judgment. And that will do much more to help treatment than referring to someone by name that doesn't fit them. We can have a discussion with the patient, you know, if, if our if the records still have the patient's birth name and the patient hasn't changed their name. We I, I always have this discussion with my patients like your your record says this, you haven't formally changed your name. Whenever I do a note, 
I'm going to state the name that you are assigned and then say preferred name and preferred gender. And then the rest of your note is going to reflect that. So I have that discussion with my patients. You know, and we do that kind of in general for a lot of patients, somebody who comes in whose name is Robert, we don't always refer to them as Robert, they say, call me Bob, you know, my name is Jeffrey, but I go by Jeff. It's, it's, it really is a simple process. We just have to expand upon it. Absolutely. The, and I think that when you mentioned, you know, policies and procedures and things on the wall, these statements, those are often meaningless without teeth to them. They're things that agencies may have put up because they felt they had to or they were told they had to. What's really important is that people practice what is preached on there. And it really becomes part of, of the culture of the environment. And I, I really, uh, I think you're hitting the nail right on the head when you talk about that teeth. I think that the teeth for the policy can be shown in different ways, as opposed to having staff being written up. The benefits of supervision and having supervisors and directors interact with staff is showing the frontline staff how to be respectful of someone who's in recovery. How do you treat that person well? The best directors I ever had were the ones that would sit down with the, and this is this has nothing to do with transgender patients, but would sit down with the most violent patients or patients that I worked with that uh, were arrested for, um, they had abused children and they still sat down with them and treated them with respect. That models to the other clinicians how to work with someone. And I really think it's important for directors and, and supervisors to have a relationship with all patients, especially patients who are transgender, so the other staff can watch how directors and supervisors will treat transgender individuals the way that they want to be treated to help facilitate change and long-term recovery. And then ultimately, as people start taking that on themselves and responding that way, becomes part of the culture. And any new clinician comes in, if there's turnover, has to fit into that culture. It has to kind of, there's pressure from all sides um, in the group process of the employees saying, you know, this is kind of how we do things. Uh, and, and this is the way we go. So it, 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 the environment itself is part, it's cultural. It has to be part of its own culture. Absolutely. Um, you know, we're talking about meeting people where they're at. We go way back to 1999. People often think this is a new thing, but we go way back to 1999. Mark Hubble, Barry Duncan, and one of my favorite people, Scott Miller, they identified four components of effective treatment on the whole. And, and they defined them in their order of ability to create change. And the first thing, which was uh, created about 40% of the change, according to their research, were the extra therapeutic factors. Nothing to do with us, absolutely nothing. You know, somebody decided that they want to make a change and they do. Uh, then it gets followed by the therapeutic relationship at 30%, positive expectancy or that placebo effect at 15. And then also whatever treatment model and interventions also only account for about 15% of change. So. The strongest thing that we have and that we can have a big part of is that therapeutic relationship. Uh, it's not as big as the extra therapeutic effects, but it's the biggest thing at 30% that we can actually wrap our hands around and work on. Given that importance of the therapeutic relationship and its principal, in our principal role in the development of that, we think that often it falls on the individual served 
but it really is our responsibility to that. What are some of the factors that influence that therapeutic relationship with transgender individuals? I love that question because I love Scott Miller and I love the session rating scale. If I could mandate that every clinician would use the session rating scale during every session, I think treatment environments would be greatly improved. It's amazing how it's accepted in Western Europe and here it's hard to get off the ground. I don't understand. I don't understand. Uh, with that said, before I talk about the therapeutic relationship, I want to just get into the extra therapeutic factors that you uh, you discussed okay. because I think this is really uh, appropriate for transgender patients. When we consider those extra therapeutic factors, um, I'll take it off transgender patients and I'll just discuss working with uh, pa- like people that would have um, borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, major depression. What I loved about working in New York is uh, New York had some really good, like excellent services, whether they be uh, vocational services or services to link people up with a social worker to get benefits. And the good news is I would, if the uh, person that my patient was linked with weren't, wasn't doing their job, I would just call them and say, hi, this is you know Dr. Nabrowski. I know you're really busy, so I'm going to call you every day until I get a hold of you on behalf of the patient. And then that just let the person know that you know we want to see stuff mm-hmm. get done. Those are some extra therapeutic factors when you have someone linked up with some additional resources. And what I found was a lot of my patients that followed up with those small things like vocational services or food or clothing or housing, when those things improved, their affect improved, they had better scores on the uh, GAD7 and the PHQ9, and they were like leaving saying how good of a therapist I was when I didn't do anything. (laughs) And um, when we work with transgender individuals, we have to be aware of those adjunct services such as how to link for hormone replacement therapy, or even just knowing the information about that. Uh, also being aware of other like uh, transgender supports or even LGBT specific uh, supports as well. When we can link a client up with people that would be non-judgmental towards them, that does help improve some of that 40% stuff that we really can't control. But if the patient does follow up on that, we're going to see some good changes in that. For the therapeutic, the um, the therapeutic relationship. So it's kind of funny. Like uh, for our listeners, you can't see. You can see me, but uh, just to disclose to the listeners, I am a heterosexual Caucasian uh, cisgender male, meaning that I am not transgender. And when I meet with my clients, they see me, and ninety nine percent of them assume that I'm not transgender, and they could they don't ever ask me about my own experiences with gender dysphoria. The patients I work with that are experiencing gender dysphoria are just so thankful that they're working with someone who has education about transgender treatment, has knowledge about the system, and is willing to just be there with them and provide a supportive environment. So usually what I do when I first meet with the individual, I uh, ask them, how would you like to be preferred? or do you have a preferred name or, and sometimes the individual may not at the beginning. And sometimes they may not, they may not have a, a preferred name change. So about like session 10. Now, by that time I've referred to them as this other name the entire time. So I have a conversation with them at the very front. So you, uh, for example, uh, your name is Robert, Robert, you now want to be informed as, uh, be identified as Lisa. I have no problem doing that with you. All of your records still indicate Robert. I'm going to do my best, but if I do mess up, please call me out on it. 
And this is a process for me to get used to as well. We'll talk and we'll work on it. Even having that conversation makes someone feel validated. Uh, being aware of those services and being aware of the process that uh, of treatment for transgender people. When I'm working with a trans patient and they are with someone who has experience and knows the transgender process, they feel better. There's tons of research that shows that transgender patients often have to educate their providers, whether it be their medical doctor, uh, it could even be their endocrinologist. They have to educate mental health clinicians and they have to educate substance use counselors. When they have someone that's sitting across from them that it has that knowledge or at least some knowledge and that there is that willingness to be devoted to working with the person, it makes usually everything so much easier. So I've never had a transgender patient ask me about my gender identity. You know, what comes up oftentimes in our field and I tell clinicians that it's a trick question. Are you in recovery? Mm -hmm. And it is a trick question because the answer that many people want to give is not going to build the therapeutic relationship. It builds a false therapeutic relationship. Lived experience only goes so far in building that relationship. Um, and I know that in, in when I worked in mental health for years with a lot of folks with chronic mental illnesses, um, if they had asked me about something and I answered honestly, they would worry about me. Yes, yes. <laughs> So it's the important part of it is saying, this is what I'm, what I've done. And this is what I'm willing to do. And kind of being genuine about that is really a good start to it. Um, and saying, Hey, I'm going to screw up now. And again, uh, you have every right to call me on it. But just saying that out there kind of lessens the guard a little bit. Uh, and I think that that's important. Uh, you know, I love talking about the therapeutic relationship. I love different ways that people can develop it. Uh, you know, there's there's not a perfect system to do so, but it's really being there with that person and taking an interest to some of the things that they're interested in, that they're interested in looking at. When you say uh, being interested in, in what they're interested in with transgender patients, there is one additional caveat though that the, the clinician has to be aware of that usually doesn't exist in other therapeutic relationships. And that is the belief that the therapist is a gatekeeper. So um, for some patients experiencing gender dysphoria, they have a belief that they have to put the best face on for their counselor. So their counselor will then link them up with adjunct services such as hormone replacement therapy or surgeries because the patients haven't read the WPATH standards of care. So they might believe that they have to put on the best face or else I will disqualify them for following up a treatment. And when you read the WPATH standards of care, there are some things which might slow it down. Obviously, I worked with one patient who uh, was experiencing active psychosis, did not have any symptoms of gender dysphoria, but said he wanted to transition because the voices in his head were telling him he needed to transition. That individual was not appropriate at that moment for intervention for that. So just based on that, that snapshot at that moment. When I work with people who are actively engaging in self-harm, we have to have a conversation about adding specific hormones, what that might do. So we have to consider those things. However, it's really important that someone is open with their counselor because we're not really a gatekeeper. We're more... Uh, we're more of a linker, uh, linkage and referral. Mm -hmm. And we can 
as a counselor, I, when I link someone with adjunct services, such as hormone replacement therapy or surgeries, I make no recommendation that the individual gets hormone replacement therapy or surgeries. I merely write how the individual is followed up with treatment, uh, their diagnosis, and I ask uh, in the documentation, I state that the individual may be a candidate for services. And what that tells the other providers is up to the provider then to do their part. So it's, it's a little different. Yeah. You can see that interplay between agencies and, you know, all of us have experienced that over the years, probation or the criminal justice telling us how, well, this person needs and and getting into that power struggle. But you addressed very early in, in the question that it's a different perspective on the power differential between the clinician and the client. Mm-hmm. It, it, that all individuals, I think, come in, but especially in the, the what you just described with a transgender individual, they feel the power differential or they experience the power differential almost immediately when they come in and they expect you. So the idea of saying I'm the same as you or uh, and not addressing that power differential in an appropriate manner, you know, is is really malpractice we have we know it's there they're telling you it's there it's it's worth having a discussion about as opposed to saying well i'm no different than you i'm you know i you know we sit on this side of the desk it makes a huge difference in how we are perceived and i never thought of that um as that somebody has to show their uh, a transgender individual would have to show their put their best foot forward to get the services that they need um but it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that power differential, it uh, it is improved when during the first session, I ask the individual what they would like to get out of treatment. And then we just discuss whether um, they the person has an expectation which is based in like research data. Some people would assume that having surgery will make them feel entirely better. So if I had surgery right now today, everything would be better. And I respect that dysphoric aspect. And I usually talk about other aspects of the individual's life, which they may have used unhelpful coping strategies, such as substance use. And if the individual transitions, we don't really address their use of their favorite coping strategies, such as substance use. So now they're using substances while they're living in the body they've always wanted to live in. Now <laughs> They're just polluting that body. So there are other things that we have to address with that. So we can do both, though. We can say, I respect your desire, and if this is your goal, it's my goal, too. I have to be honest. There might be some things that are going on with your life that may prevent you from making pro- uh, steps with your transition mm-hmm. and or process and uh making, I'm sorry, progress in your transition. And that could be some pretty severe substance use. If someone is really struggling with substance use, and if they're more interested in getting whatever their drug of choice is, they might sell their hormones for their drug of choice. They may do certain things and put themselves in a bad situation. It's a common behavior for someone in the throes of a substance use disorder. It's just what is being part of the transaction may be different, but the selling or, you know, that's a common behavior. People do what they need to do to avoid withdrawal, to avoid the, the, the you know, the detox and all the things that go with that. So it's just, I think as clinicians, it's important to be aware of what some of those things may be for any given population. Yes. 
and again, that's something that it, it's new to me. I had never put it into into my head, but so because somebody wants those hormones so badly, but it's also the most valuable commodity they have to get something that they need right now. And it takes the place. What I want often is forgotten by what I is, is outweighed by what I need and I'll do whatever it takes to get it. Yes. And uh, the bad news is when someone will stop their hormone replacement therapy, some of the secondary sexual characteristics may return, thus increasing dysphoria. So for example, uh, if someone is transitioning to male and they're taking testosterone, when they stop taking testosterone, they might get their period again. And right there, symptoms of dysphoria just flood the body and they will need more substances to then that. So it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a common vicious circle with different specifics for a transgendered individual. Yes. You know, a, a common, really important and very often misunderstood aspect of the therapeutic relationship is countertransference. For any of number of reasons, we often ignore it, whether it be not having appropriate clinical supervision, not being comfortable with, with the things we're feeling. But when we talk about working with a transgender client, why is it especially important for us to be aware of our own countertransference issues? That's a really great question. And I think that kind of comes into how we conceptualize transgender people. Prior to my working in the field, I had a ton of preconceived judgments, of, not only about transgender people, but uh, about a lot of people. I had a lot of uh, preconceived judgments in regards to sex offenders, in regards to people that, uh, that have experienced certain crimes. And these things were instituted with me culturally, also like instituted because of like my family, like, you know, God bless them, like, you know, but also instituted because I had no connection with these other communities. And I had some uh, people in my life which were able to really help me work through that. Uh, one of which was the first trans person I ever had an opportunity to sit down and speak with. I was in grad school and we were, um, work, we were supposed to do a presentation on uh, something that was in the DSM. And at that time, I had tons of experience working in the field, but I had never worked with gender dysphoria. So a fellow student in the class linked me with someone that they knew that was transgender. And this woman, she was so nice. Like we went out to coffee and she let me ask every inappropriate question I shouldn't have asked, but she treated me with such grace. And like, I, she was so wonderful that she did not judge me for me asking really ridiculous questions. Then from there, when I uh, continued my work with transgender individuals, I was working with Dr. Michael DeMarco. Uh, he's a, he was a great uh, uh, friend, great clinician. And when I was working with, when I was being exposed to transgender individuals, there's just a lot of stuff that didn't make sense based on my heteronormativity. heteronormativity. Mm -hmm. So I would hear stuff and I would like, it would be like a record would skip. And I'd be like, what is this? That doesn't make any sense. And he was also so like genuine in regards to help me like work through some of this stuff. It wasn't judgmental and he didn't come off and saying, oh, that's your counter-transference and you're a bad person. He didn't say that. He said, you know, like, listen, you know, when you're hearing this, it doesn't make sense. So let's really pull it back. And it just came back with that education about how gender dysphoria is different than sexuality. And really like, you know, what does it really mean to experience gender dysphoria? And he was so, uh, I mean, he was validating for my initial concerns while respectfully challenging them. 
and giving me the skills to cross that bridge. So the uh, the trans the countertransference is there. We all have our automatic thoughts. We all uh, we all have our automatic feelings. That's fine. And I was just really lucky to have really good supervision to help me get through that without judgment, without without making me feel bad. It was great to have someone really provide that support. And that's a common thing I hear when I talk to clinicians who have had their own struggles with the work that they do. Um, and how did they get through it and how do they deal with some of the issues that kind of were stopping them from being as effective? It all goes back to great supervision. All the, you know, the great clinicians I know talk about great supervision um, and, and how that plays a role. But it certainly becomes a big factor here. Uh, a supervisor should have a good understanding of some of the issues that a clinician is dealing with uh, or some of the uniqueness of a transgender client so that they can provide appropriate supervision and challenge their own assumptions and countertransference issues. Absolutely. When you say that there's a bunch of like really good trainings available on NADAC as well as oh, the LGBT, I think it's the Action Network, but it's uh, through, oh my gosh, it's going to drive me nuts, but the name's going to come back to me by the end of our podcast, but they have free training resources. It is, uh, it's amazing. So there's a lot of good stuff out there. Is there, when we talk about counter-transference and dealing with it, and again, I don't know if this is specific to transgender folks, but is there a set of skills that we can use to recognize and to kind of assess our own counter-transference? So I was We won't change unless there's, we may get the information extrinsically and start to change it because we have to, but we really have to kind of internalize uh, that desire to change for us to really address the difficult issues. Yes, absolutely. I think, so I, uh, it's kind of a balance of, I really do believe that the best thing a clinician could bring to the patient is themselves being genuine and being who they are. So there's a balance of us being genuine with ourselves and also being genuine with our clients. And with that though, we also have to get out of our own way to help meet the need of the client. I was kind of, uh, so I conceptualize countertransference in a CBT way. I don't necessarily view it as countertransference. I kind of view it as like automatic thoughts based on my core beliefs. I mean, we can, there's overlap. You can, we can just translate it in a different way. When I, when I conceptualize it like that though, before, sometimes before we're aware of our automatic thought, we get a feeling. And through my CBT training, I've been trained to pay attention to my feeling because I'm always, I'm not always paying attention to my thought. I'm sometimes more concerned about how I'm going to react. So I've been trained that when I have a feeling, just hit the pause button ask myself what that feeling is and be really blatantly honest with myself in regards to what I'm thinking. And then ask if there's, ask myself, is there a way I can translate that into something clinical? So judgment-free zone, I don't mean to be disrespectful to anyone, but I think we've all had instances where we're working with a client or a patient and the person says something that's offensive to us. (laughs) So like they say something that's offensive to us, we get angry and we might want to respond back by saying, you're rude. You might want to respond back by saying that. However, though, when we recognize that feeling, all right, okay, the person offended us. You want to say they're rude. What's the purpose of saying they're rude? Well, we want the person to know that they did something wrong. Is there another way we can say that? And when someone would say something, I would say, for example, uh, so you just, you just uh, 
I can see you're frustrated. You just referred to me as an idiot. I respect your frustration. But as we're going on, I, I just wonder when you do treat, when you do say those things to people, how does it normally turn out? Is there anything else you want to say in addition to me being an idiot? Can you tell me what I'm missing and how I can help you with that? And just getting myself out of my own way to then try to meet the patient's needs. Then, like, then I could go have supervision and then I could go complain to my supervisor and all that other good stuff. But with that, in that moment, just getting out of my own way to refocus on the client. And with transgender patients, especially when we hear something that's confusing, just get out of our own way. Tell me more about that. How can, I, how can we help you with that? I'm confused by that. Can you explain that a little more? I wonder if I'm hearing that correctly. Little stuff like that. You know, I kept it simple for me. From my end, I would just say, you know, you, you may be right. I may, I may be an idiot. It's certainly possible. But we still need to talk about the positive urine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. And, you know, if, the, if the, you see a lot of affect, then there's always tomorrow, right? So, Absolutely. And not to engage. Um you know, I, honestly, I am fascinated with issues of countertransference, uh, both from my own clinical work and the experiences I had. And I go back to when I was a social work student, my supervisor was brutal mm. on everything except my countertransference. He just drilled me, made it so difficult, and I'm thankful for that. Um, but when it came to countertransference, he made me explore it. It wasn't simple. Uh, and it wasn't clinical, but it was how can I get through this to do my job better? And so it fascinates me. And then from how it manifests itself in others, because you can sit back and watch others and say, Oh, that's a hot button. There he goes there. You know, there it goes. Um, so how do we own, how do we challenge our own counter transference? I think you gave a good answer to that kind of the CBT model, you know, um, in doing a little thought chart in our head. <laughs> To, to, to kind of take that one second and pause. Um, but I'm, I, I, mean, I know you answered this, but my biggest guess is that ability to be, like you said, blatantly honest uh, with ourselves, you know, and stop trying to BS a BSer. Yes. And I, I, I think that's important. Like, I think that uh, we are sometimes even worried to be honest with ourselves. So when I work with my students or supervisees and they're frustrated, I say, how did that patient make you feel? And they're like, oh, it, it doesn't bother me at all. And I'm like, so what I do is I kind of report what I'm seeing them. So you're telling me on one hand, it doesn't bother you. I'm noticing you have an increased rate of speech, noticing your face is flustered. You are giving me signals which indicate that you're frustrated. And then you know, being respectful in regards to that. In regards to like working with it ourselves, though, that pause, that one second pause is so much. And it's, I always validate my feeling. That doesn't mean my feeling is right, but it means my feeling is real. And I may have misheard something or the, in regards to pure counter-transference, the patient may have just hit something that's really important to me and it, it hurts. So with that, you know, okay, yes, it's, uh, you're experiencing something. It's okay that you're experiencing something. It's hard to work with people. And with that, it's okay. Is this the right time? Is it important to, to die on this hill with this patient? Is, it, is this the thing I, I want? Is this even important to the patient? And if it's not important to the patient, why is it important to me? 
so just some questions I ask because I, the, and, but really though, validating myself while being brutally honest about my thoughts and then trying to get myself out of my own way for the patient. Those are like my three steps that I try to manage counter-transference with. And it gives us, when we can manage it and assess what's going on in ourselves, it gives us a chance um, to continue to be real with that individual, although it may be the, the, the response may be delayed, but it also gives us a chance to role model an appropriate social interaction. It's okay to go at another time and say, when you're having a conversation saying, when you said that, here's how I responded. It's okay to tell someone, look, that pissed me off. Just not while you pissed off. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's important that someone hears how the reaction is, but it's it doesn't mean that you were right to be appealed. It's just you're being open and honest about it after the fact when the affect is kind of, of gone. Um, and I appreciate you talking about that because I think that kind of goes that also brings up a uh, discussion about self-disclosure. So I, if a patient asks me about my uh, substance use history, I don't really tell them. I validate that it's that they have a concern that they want to work with someone who knows what they're talking about. What I do, what I do disclose though, if a patient tells me that they want to kill themselves and they have a means to kill themselves and they're going home to kill themselves, I tell them I'm experiencing some anxiety for you thinking about you going home and you killing yourself. Like I hate to laugh at that, but that's, I mean, but I'm blatantly honest with my, with the people I work with and I self-disclose my experience in that moment with them. Yeah. It's self-disclosure should always be in the here and now Mm -hmm. and not be advice, but just be reality. And I think that you get a better response from that. And you chuckled when you said that, but you know what? The individual sitting in that room with you may chuckle as well. You may catch them off guard. And that you're normalizing the discussion. And for that individual, as we were talking about earlier, uh, before we record, you know, suicidality is is a mindset, not an action. And it's a mindset that you're telling them it's it's okay to have that mindset. That's where you're at right now. Now, it's nice to be able to develop coping skills and things, but I'm not going to try to change that mindset. We're just going to go with what it is. Mm -hmm. And that mindset, uh, the... Individuals experience so much to get to that point. When we, if we prevent the individual from harming themselves, that doesn't mean that the crisis is averted and we high five and everything's okay. They're, the individual is still hurting and they need a lot of help because they're still in that mindset, even though they may not have uh, tried or completed, but that mindset is still there. And it's important to give the attention that they need because rather than kind of feeding into what we see with a lot of access to stuff, that when there's a crisis, people get a lot of attention. When the crisis is gone, they get none. So you create a crisis to get the attention that you need. And it's all unconscious, but it's it's very visible. You see it in, in individuals. Um, you had mentioned a couple of things earlier. And where can our listeners find resources for their own professional development? So I brought up my favorite place, which is the Fenway Institute. And you can find that at uh, www lgbtqiahealtheducation.org. That this is my favorite site for all LGBT related information as there are hundreds of free continuing education hours, uh, webinars available to people. I, this, this was one of the resources that I used when I was first uh, started working with transgender individuals. I love this resource. 
I'll say, also say that WPATH, like WPATH standards of care, you can just Google that and download it and you can read it. For some of my students that I, that I work with at the University of Bridgeport, a few of them, three of them have transgender patients. And I, I told them I would not let them work with transgender patients until they read the WPATH standards of care. As ridiculous as this sounds, those students who actually read the standards of care now far more, they now know far more than their supervisors even about working with transgender patients. So I encourage every supervisor, every director, download this and read it. There are a bunch of other resources in regard, uh, you can find on uh, Glisten. If you just, and also like NADAC has a bunch of free stuff. The ACA has a bunch of free stuff as well. Um, well, ACA, you have to pay for it. And uh, NADAC, you pay for it with your membership. But th those are just awesome resources as well. Um, what are some resources for transgender individuals who are have SUDs and are seeking recovery? Where can they get information? Uh, to find about programs and, and organizations that may be appropriate for them. So I, um, hold on one second. Let me just bring it up. Like uh, there are a lot of uh, transgender, a lot of transgender specific services available. However, um, within that, these, some of these services are national. So for example, the, um, there's like transgender law, that is, uh, that's the name of the place. So transgender law specifically, they will give you, if you're transgender, they'll give you information in regards to like how to change your name, how to change your gender marker, stuff like that. You can go on 211 and you could find some information, but you could also uh, just Google transgender treatment and just put your area down there. And in Connecticut, I know that there are some pretty good treatment programs. And within that though, we also have to be aware that although someone is saying that they have transgender treatment, that doesn't necessarily mean that they do. So uh, Middlesex um, says that uh, Middlesex indicates that they have uh, transgender medicine. Uh, UConn also indicates that they have transgender medicine as well. If you go on Psychology Today, they have uh, uh, information about transgender Connecticut uh, transgender treatment centers. But with that, and I'm sorry for talking crap, please forgive me. But I've worked with a lot of clinicians who put down that LGBT experience. And when they got referred to transgender patient, they said, oh, I can't work with this patient. I've never worked with a transgender person before. And I asked you, you know, on your resume, you said you had trans, you said you had LGBT experience. And they said, yes, I do. And I, I had to say, what about the T? That is, so a lot of people assume that they have transgender experience because they work with gay, lesbian, and bisexual people. That's not the same. So I do encourage that. If uh, someone is trans and they're listening, please just ask about the level of expertise for the people that they're working with. If I was going to put you on the spot and say, can you name one specific resource for individuals like myself to serve as a primer or introduction to getting information on working with transgender individuals? Would you say it was LGBTQIAHealthEducation.org? It was the Fenway Institute. Fenway Institute. And, uh, and that was... Um, uh, and that actually is, yes, LG, lgbtqiahealtheducation.org. That is the Fenway Institute. And that is like my favorite resource. Excellent. 
Um, if our listeners had more questions or if they wanted more information, is there a way that they can contact you, your email maybe? Yes. So I am available for questions at Fred Dombrowski. That's my first and last name, F-R-E-D-D-O-M as in Michael, B-R-O-W-S-K-I at gmail.com. That is my dog out there. That yeah, yeah. wasn't mine. She's sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> Not so, for even. Yes, yeah. So my first and last name, Fred Dombrowski, all together is one word, at gmail.com. Excellent. Look, I've really enjoyed our conversation over the past couple of weeks. Um, I feel that we've cracked the seal on my ignorance, but it's also driven me and motivated me to want to learn more. Um, You know what happens when you get a little bit of information. You want more, you want more, you want more. Um, And on behalf of the CCB, I'd like to offer my appreciation for you taking the time, for your knowledge and your experience. Um, Any closing comments that you'd like to add? Absolutely. First off, I want to thank you for your ongoing dedication to clinicians across the state of Connecticut, and especially for the services that the CCB provides. You guys have done an awesome job of creating certification for varying approaches to treating substance use. Not everyone needs to be a counselor. There are different ways to provide assistance and help. You guys do an excellent job of making a way to objectively identify that. Thank you for all that you do. Well, thank and you for, for the kind the, words. And you do an excellent job. Also, for all the clinicians here in Connecticut, I want to thank them for what they're doing, especially during the time of COVID and during this crisis. I'm just begging like every clinician in regards to working with transgender individuals to start off by reading the WPAS standards of care. It will take one evening. It'll take two hours to read. It's 100 pages, but you will get so much Um I would like to thank everyone once again for everything that they do. It is a pleasure to have to be on here and please feel free to reach out to me if anyone has any questions. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. Again, I'd like to thank Dr. Fred Dombrowski for lending us his time, insight, and experience to increase our understanding of what is truly a marginalized community. We here at the CCB appreciate all who take the time to follow and listen to our discussions. So please don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast application. If you have thoughts on future podcast ideas or guests, you can send those to info at ctcertboard.org. I'd love to hear what people have in mind and, and take suggestions. Please tell your friends and colleagues about us as well. And until next time, 